Well, I don't remember the exact date, but I was around seven or eight years old, which puts it around 1982 or 1983, and it was a rare, hot day in Hump Tulips, Washington. Now, besides being a town that's tiny and having a humorous name, Hump Tulips is one of the grayest, wettest, coldest places I've ever lived. It's situated uh, in the rainforest a mere half hour or so from the ocean, and it was usually wet and cold even during the summertime. But on this particular day, it was sunny and probably like 70, which we thought was 100 or something. And so um, my parents brought us, we lived on a fish hatchery. My dad's a biologist, or he's retired now. But anyway, so we walked from the fish hatchery to the Hump Tulips River, which is a pretty serious river if you've ever been on it or fished on it. It's, it's big and it's not for beginners, but there was a little cove where um, my brother and sister and I could play with supervision. Upstream a little bit were some teenagers and they were going on inner tubes down the river and having a good time. And there was a particular spot where it was like a dam and then uh, an outlet and there was a four foot drop. So these teenagers would go down in their tubes and it looked really awesome. And I, I don't remember how long we were there, but I do remember the moment when we saw a tube go by our little cove with no one on it. And then we heard a commotion and people yelling and a teenage boy was kind of frantically pointing and swimming in the water and there was hair and a girl uh, had gone under the water. And all I remember is my dad jumped into the water and swam against the current into the side and retrieved this young teenage girl, brought her back to the shore and she was unresponsive and it was just all so surreal. He's doing CPR and she comes back kind of like in the movies, like she coughs up all this water, is disoriented, and, and I don't even remember how, how it all went from there. She's better, her friends arrived, she's okay, and all of a sudden, it was like business as usual. They left, and I'm sure she went home, and there we were, and we walked home having experienced this surreal thing that just happened. A life was in danger. There was a savior, and then after the saving, people just parted ways. It's kind of what happens when there's no prior relationship. The savior and the saved do their thing and then go on with their lives. There's no relationship before the incident, so there's no basis for a relationship after the incident. Now, it would have been quite another story had the victim been me, after all, I was pestering my dad the whole time. I want to do what those big kids are doing. I want to go down the little chute on an inner tube. It would have been different if I had been the victim, if I had been saved by my own father, because even though he would have been my savior in that moment, after the saving, I would have still had a relationship that was based on more than the saving. I would have still had a dad who provided for me and sheltered me and clothed me and led me in the household. The book of Judges describes a period of time that takes place after Exodus, after Joshua has brought the Israelites into the promised land and displaced many of the people there, and it takes place before Saul and David and the royal kingship of Israel. It's in this in-between time. The book of Judges tells us a dozen stories of how Israel disobeyed God by becoming oppre uh, oppressed by foreign invaders. They were then rescued by their father, Yahweh. And their problem, though, is that after God came to the rescue a dozen times, it wasn't long before they totally forgot about him 
and began to go their own way and pursue other gods and goddesses. That's the story that we're going to look at tonight, the story of Gideon. Now, you know me and how I typically preach. I'm going to cover two chapters tonight. Normally, this might be a five-part series, but you're just going to have to bear with me. It's just one of those nights we're going to do like a flyover, okay? Judges chapter 6 describes the scene with these words. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. And during this time, the Midianites and the Amalekites would come on annual raids to Israel. Here's the scene. Israel would cultivate their land. They lived in a really fertile area. They would cultivate the land all year. And just when the crops were at harvest time, here comes the Midianites and Amalekites. They come in and take all that they want. And then they practiced scorched earth warfare, and they would salt the earth and destroy it, take the cattle, just so that Israel could never get an economic leg up. They could never build an army. They could never resist year after year after year. This was the scene. So the Israelites cry out to the Lord for rescue, and the Lord sends, not a rescuer, he sends an anonymous prophet in fact, this, where's Wasserman? This made me laugh because uh, in one of the commentaries I read, it was like, imagine you're stranded on the side of the road, and instead of AAA, they send a philosopher. <laughs> now, I know Ryan could actually change a tire. Uh, he's, he's a pretty great guy. But, but seriously, like, here they are uh, under attack, oppression by these foreign nations, and he sends a, an anonymous prophet, and here's the, what the prophet says. God rescued you from Egypt and brought you into a spacious land, and warned you not to go other gods, but you didn't listen to him. Walk off the stage. That's it. No comfort, no promise of rescue, no, I'm going to bail you out again, just, hey, let me just tell you, I've done all this for you, I love you, I gave you a warning, this is why this is happening. That's it. And just when things look bleak, the story focuses in on one small man from one small family from one small tribe. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Um, I'm going to read a few times during this, so I'm not going to ask you to stand every time. But if you'd like to follow along, I'm in Judges chapter 6. And I'm going to start on verse 11 and read 11 through 17. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Asbirite. As his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles that our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel Behold, my family is the least of Manasseh. I am the youngest of my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely 
I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for uh, this story. Thank you for acting in history in ways that um, we can relate to. Uh, I can relate to being um, not the strongest, not the most powerful. Um, Lord, we can relate to that. And we thank you that you work in and through people like that all throughout Scripture. And we pray, Lord, uh, even though we may have heard this story before, that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you're saying to us today about who we are and who you are and what that means. Amen. Thus far in the story, the first 10 verses, we've been looking at the scene through a wide-angle lens. Um, We've got all of Israel in the picture. We've got Midianites and Amalekites, these coalition forces that come against Israel. We've got danger. We've got a prophet coming to share the reason and then no solution. And all of a sudden, the aperture focuses in on one man. Some observations. Gideon, where is he when the story opens? Where is Gideon physically in the story? I saw your lips. Wine press? That's right, Jim. He's in a wine press. And is he stomping grapes or making wine? No, 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 no. He's beating the wheat. You don't normally beat the wheat in the wine press. He's hiding. He's afraid. He's afraid of being seen by the Midianites who may come upon him. So it's a bit ironic then, don't you think, when God comes to Gideon and says, Behold, valiant warrior! I wonder if Gideon was like, Oh, first of all, who the heck are you? Are you a Midianite? And second of all, are you talking to me? Because like, I'm shaking, I'm in a wine press beating my wheat because I'm a coward. I don't see any valiant warriors here. And what do you mean, Gideon says, God is with me. Like, where has God been all this time? If God is with me, why has all this happened to us? And where are these miracles that our fathers told us about how you rescued us from Egypt and all of this stuff? I think it's cool how the Lord responds. He looks at Gideon and says, looks at Gideon, a man with no strength and no power and seemingly little courage, and he says, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Well, I guess you just did. I didn't know you'd sent me before, right? Like Moses before him, Gideon is perplexed and lists a litany of reasons why he can't do the job. My family is the least of Manasseh, and I'm the youngest of my father's house. And God says the only thing that really matters, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. I shall be with you. Up to this point, Gideon does not know who the I in I will be with you is. See, the narrator has tipped our hands, or tipped his hand, uh, to the fact that Yahweh is the one speaking to Gideon. But if you notice in your text, when Gideon addresses this stranger as Lord, it's in lowercase. It basically means sir. It's a respectful greeting. He's saying, sir, 
If God is with us, then where has he been? He does not yet know that this person speaking to him is the angel of the Lord or Yahweh himself. Is it a prophet? Is it a wise stranger? Is it an angel? Or is this someone more? So through a test, Gideon gets his answer. After preparing a meal of a young goat and 22 liters, the equivalent of 22 liters of bread, that's more than you would feed one man, he brings all this stuff, and the stranger says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Put the meat here on this rock, put the bread out, and then I want you to cover it all with broth. Does that remind you of another story where you might put water or liquid on top of an offering? Elijah, right, and the prophets of Baal. So here we are. This, is, this precedes Elijah in the history of, of the world in, in Israel. Um, so we've, we've got this laid out, and then this stranger takes his staff and touches the offering, and boom, it bursts into flame. And now Gideon realizes that this stranger is something much more than just a prophet or a stranger. He's either an angel of the Lord or the Lord himself. He knows now that when the stranger says that God is with you, that somebody godly or godly powerful is with him. Gideon finds out what I think you and I really need to know, it's what every person needs to know, is that in spite of impossible odds, God is with us. And if God calls us to do something, he will see to it that it is done, no matter what you think the obstacles are. Now, notice what I didn't say, because people often misquote that verse from Philippians. I can do all things through God who strengthens me. Well, not really like whatever you want, but you can do all things that God calls you to do through the power uh, of God that strengthens you. So here... Gideon is getting confidence that he can do this task that God has called him to because God will be with him in the task. Now, what's interesting is what God wants done first. One might think that the first order of business, if you've got a, a small nation of people and you've got these uh, bullies who are outside, the Amalekites and the Midianites, and they're stealing all your food and all your livestock, you might think that the first order of business is to build a wall and make them pay for it. No, to build a wall and to, and to defend yourself, right? You want to build a wall and defend yourself and, and take care of those enemies, and then you can grow crops and start having, you know, increase your population and the health of your people, and then in security we can deal with kind of the things that are broken on the inside of our society or our culture. But God takes the exact opposite tack, before dealing with Israel's enemies, he's got to deal with Israel's heart. And so here's a second reading uh, from Judges 6, 25 through 27. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. It's kind of cool. So this Asherah is uh, 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 representing a female deity who is the consort of the god Baal. So they're kind of a tandem. People would worship these shrines. And I think it's kind of funny that God would have him cut down this wood and then use that wood to be the offering, the fuel for the offering to Yahweh, okay? And then Gideon took 10 men 
uh, of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, they did it at night. Hey, it's kind of wisdom, right? But also a little bit cowardly. I can't say I would have done differently. So Israel had an idolatry problem, and the shrines dedicated to the, the god Baal and to the Asherah were both located on the property of his father. His family were the patrons of these shrines. Israel may have thought her biggest problems were economic or national security, but God knew that Israel's biggest problem had to do with idolatry, and the cure for the sickness in their hearts is the same as the cure it is for the sickness in our hearts and that's the worship of the one true God. I've heard people say things like, you know, worship on Sunday is okay, but it's not my favorite. Or what I really enjoy about church is doing stuff, serving in the community. I don't think singing is all that important. Or I'm not religious. I don't do the church thing, but I'm spiritual. Or this is a big one in our community. Uh, you know, nature is my church, and I connect with God in the woods, but, you know, the whole thing about gathering together as a church, I don't know how important that is for me. The problem with Israel in this story is not that they weren't worshiping. It's that their worship was misguided. And when the Israelites moved into the promised land, they were warned not to merge through marriage their families to the natives who were there because the natives were worshiping other gods and goddesses. And God knew that these Israelites would be tempted to worship in another style and another way. See, many scholars believe that Israel didn't simply move into Canaan and forget all about Yahweh and just start worshiping Baal and these other gods and goddesses. Instead, what they did was they worshiped Yahweh as though he were Baal. So what I mean by that is that they worshiped him in the way that the Canaanites worshiped their gods. So for example, worshipers of Baal believed that you had to get his attention that he was the type of God who might just sleep while you're in your dire need. And so they would practice cutting themselves, inflicting pain and harm on themselves. They would starve themselves for long periods of time thinking that they would get God's attention. They believed that Baal was fickle and needed to be cared for and pampered, that he actually couldn't feed himself. So the offerings were his dinner and his lunch and his breakfast. They thought that Baal had to be won over and convinced to be good to them, and only then, if he maybe felt like it, would he come to your aid. They learned these things from the natives who were there and began to treat God, Yahweh, as though he were like that. You see the problem there. The problem with this approach is that God is not at all like Baal. He never sleeps. He doesn't need to get woken up. You don't have to hurt yourself in order for him to pay attention. He's not typically angry and moody. He doesn't need us to feed him and to pamper him. Like he created all this stuff. He can just snack on whatever he wants. If he needs to eat it all, I'm not sure about that. Our God is gracious and compassionate. He is for us. He wants us to thrive for heaven's sakes, brothers and sisters. He made you and me in his image. 
It's in his best interest that you and I thrive in life because he wants your life and my life and the church's life to reflect him in his creativity, in his joy, in his graciousness, in his generosity. He wants us to reflect those character qualities out to the world. It's what we're for. And it means that you and I have great dignity. Proper worship is vital because it helps our attention deficit disorder souls stay focused on what is true. It it, it informs why we serve. It informs that he is the God who created nature. I I love being in nature too, by the way, and it, it brings glory to God, but I know this, that if I only was serving other people, or if I was only finding my church by myself out on a trail somewhere, and I never went to church, that I would slowly be off in the way that I perceive those things. Proper worship is a correction in the story, and they had to be cleansed from their idolatry. Now, we may not have all worshipers around us or be tempted to worship and bow down at the Asherah pole, but we do have syncretism. Every nation has syncretism. It's the melding of ideas and ideals and how we approach God. So, for example, this is low-hanging fruit one. Um, Some groups marry the American dream of prosperity and freedom to do whatever we want as something promised by the gospel, as though Jesus died to give us the American dream. And in many ways, parts of the American dream are in direct contradiction to what Jesus says. Like, you can't have a God that says, pick up your cross daily and follow me, and I am American, I want freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want it. Those things don't mesh together. And that's why we need worship where we're weakly centered on the Word of God. The Word of God shows us who God really is, not just who we invent Him to be in our brains. It reminds us of what he's done and who we are in his bigger story. Like, where do I fit into this thing? We need worship where we are coming together and participating in the sacraments of communion that puts us at the foot of the cross every day. We need a regular time of, hey, I'm confessing my sin here. And we need words of uh, forgiveness spoken over us on a regular basis. That was the first step in God's deliverance of Israel through Gideon. And it's the first step for us as well. After all, I think what we need most is to know God and to know that he's with us and what that means. Once God works through Gideon to clear up the worship situation, he then turns his attention to delivering Israel from her oppressors. And it's here I really want you to pay attention to what the oppression is in the story and who the hero is in the story. I know some of you uh, kids have been given some notes to take during the sermon. This might be the answer to some questions coming up here soon. So on the surface of the story, the oppressors are the Midianites and the Amalekites. Uh, They're the ones doing the looting. They're the ones doing the killing. They're laying waste to Israel. And on the surface, Gideon is the hero. He's this guy who starts off as weak in the wine press, and he grows to lead this army of 300 uh, to defeat the Midianite coalition. But that's just the surface of the story. Let's dig a little deeper. First of all, this is cool. We read that Gideon, at this point in the story, gets filled with the Holy Spirit. If Gideon does anything of significance or courage or valor, the story wants us to know that 
It is God's Spirit within him that has enabled him to do anything positive. Before God's Holy Spirit, I'm in the wine press beating my wheat because I'm afraid. After God's Spirit, I'm calling the armies together. Okay? But there's a flip side to this. Just because Gideon is filled with God's Holy Spirit does not mean that he is somehow just transformed altogether into a new person. And I want you to hear this because you and I, unlike people in the Old Testament who just got the Spirit for specific tasks, you and I, if you have uh, said yes to Jesus, you've been baptized, you have the Holy Spirit all the time. And God dwells in you, and you may wonder, if I've got the Holy Spirit of God, why do I think these thoughts sometimes? Why do I still struggle with these sins sometimes? Why do I get so angry, so defensive sometimes, so lustful sometimes? If I've got the Spirit, why does this happen? Well, this is interesting. So Gideon is filled with the Spirit, but that doesn't mean he's been totally transformed yet. After all, what is Gideon known for, most of all? has to do with, yeah, the fleece, right? Like, that's kind of what, he gets a bad rap. He's known for the guy who gets away with testing God a bunch of times. His being filled with the Spirit did not, like, erase his personality to being a fearful individual. And I want you to know that, too. It should give us some comfort, A, that, oh, okay, it could still mean I have the Holy Spirit even if I'm not perfect yet. And B, that character development is still really important. Like, it takes effort. It takes uh, intentionality to continue to walk with Jesus, okay? So Gideon um, comes up with this test. He puts a fleece out, and he asks God, okay, so God, I want to put this fleece out, and if in the morning there's dew on the fleece, but no dew on the ground, then, wow, I would really trust you. So he goes to sleep, he wakes up, he gets up, no dew on the ground, the fleece is full of water, rings it out, gets a drink. Uh, This is the way uh, Bedouin people continue to get moisture in desert nights. But then he realizes, like all of these um, current day Bedouins have written in about this, and they say, that's actually really common. Like a lot of times the fleece has water in the ground, doesn't. So Gideon's like, oh, that was a lame test. Okay, okay, I got another one for you. What if I put the fleece out tonight and the ground is all wet, but there's no water on the fleece? Then I would really know. Okay, so notice two things. First of all, Gideon is still doubting. He has little faith, you guys. He is not the hero of the story. This story is not there to say, hey, church, be like Gideon. It's not at all what it's saying. Gideon is the embodiment of Israel, and I would argue the embodiment of humanity. How quickly we forget all the great things God has done for us, how uh, he may have delivered us from some massive thing or done some really awesome thing in our life, and the next situation, I mean, you know this is true, the next situation is like, I don't know if he's going to see me through this one. It's just, we just have problems. (laughs) Second, notice how gracious God is toward Gideon. He doesn't chastise him for his lack of faith. He doesn't leave him and say, Ugh, I'm going to go find somebody more suitable than you. God shows himself patient and kind. He is nothing like Baal or Asherah or any king or queen that history has ever known. And now the true hero of the story is revealed along with the true oppressor. 
Gideon has gathered 30,000 troops to his side, and while there's still a smaller army than the Midianite and Amalekite coalition army, there's still a chance that with 30,000 dudes, they could win this thing and say, yeah, we're pretty bad, we did it, we were outnumbered, but our superior fighting ability brought us this victory. There's still a chance that that could happen. But God knows better. In fact, verse 1 in chapter 6 tells us that it was Israel that rebelled, and it was God who gave them over to the Midianites. Why? To show them that all evil, all oppression, death itself, stems not from just the Midianites and Amalekites. They're not the true oppressors in the story. It stems from trying to do life without God. That's where death comes from. That's where your problems come from. That's where evil comes from. Israel had turned her back on God, a move that would lead to her death and destruction. So this battle with the Midianites, it wasn't just to save Israel from her national enemies. It was to save her from herself. It was to rescue her so that people will go, there is no other way we could have won this battle except for God. Oh God, you are awesome. I'm turning back to you. That's the point. And so if God simply delivered Israel from the battlefield, they could say thank you and be on their way, kind of like the girl who was rescued by my dad, who, I mean, that's the normal response, right? There's no, not saying anything bad about it. It's just like you rescued and then you go to your life and I go to my life. That's how that is. But Israel was God's child. He wanted to save her, not just from something, but for something, for a relationship with him. And he wants a relationship with you and me that is beyond just bailing you out when you're in trouble. God's not just a life ring there when we need him from time to time, and it's like, okay, you got me out of that, now I'm good on my own. He's our father, the center of our life, the giver of all good things. And so he does what God does. He whittled this force down from 30,000 men to 300. And you can imagine the scene before the battle. Gideon, the youngest son of a small family in a small tribe, is leading a vastly outnumbered tiny army against the mighty coalition forces. And in his graciousness, God gives Gideon some encouragement. I turn now to Judges 7, verses 9 through 18. The night of the attack. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise and go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hands. Now look how gracious God is to offer this. But if you're afraid to go down, like he knows he's afraid, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now, the Midianites and Amalekites said all the sons of the east were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number. Tactically and numerically, a superior army to Israel. Israel did not, was not known for having camels or cavalry, uh, cavalry. When Gideon came, Behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. Kind of like what happened to Charles at the men's retreat that year when the wind blew his tent over. Oh, that was funny. Okay. 
his friend, his friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. So this Midianite soldier is terrified. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into, into your hands. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. What grace our God has, what power. The hero of the story is obviously at this point not, not Gideon, it's not Israel, it's Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. How would Gideon and his army, his tiny army, defeat such a powerful force? Not by might at all, but by the hand of God. God put fear and confusion into the hearts of these mighty men who were totally outnumbered Gideon and, uh, and his forces. By the way, notice that Gideon's 300 dudes, they didn't even have swords. They had a trumpet and a torch. It's kind of like Joshua and Jericho. So when they blow this thing, if you were to keep reading in the chapter, I'm not going to cover it all. Let me just tell you how it goes. The Midianites freak out. And they start killing each other. Like God put this spirit of confusion on them. God is the great warrior who defeats Israel's enemies. See, in our world, we think it takes great power to get things done. There's the allure of the powerful leader, the no-nonsense brash proprietor of power, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or an autocrat. Even in the church, we're duped into thinking that the bigger, the better. The bigger we are, the more powerful we can be, the more influential we can be. That it takes big buildings and big congregations uh, and, and big book deals and big subscriptions to our podcasts. We think it takes large budgets and dozens of ministries, but the reality just doesn't stack up. What a blessing for us to have been with the two Panamanian churches a couple weeks ago. To see what God can do, not through big, rich ministries, but through faithful people. Neither one of those churches had big, fancy buildings or big budgets or nationally recognized pastors, but they were reaching people in their neighborhood for Jesus. Yeah, I know a little church like that with no particularly special leadership or fantastic facility, although I'm so grateful to have this place. And I know lots of churches in our town like that. I know Fountain Community Church is like that, and Roosevelt Community Church is like that, and First Baptist Church downtown is like that, and uh, many of the CTK uh, satellite churches that are planting up all over the places are like that, and Pastor Ivan and his many uh, Hispanic congregations out in the county, they're like that. They're transforming lives. Why? Not because they're rich and because they're powerful and because they have the best educations and all of these things. It's because they're faithful to do what God has called them to do. God has not called every church or every Christian to be on TV or to be wealthy and powerful, but he's called each of us to do something significant.
How can this be that God can use little things and little people? Weak people. Because we're not supposed to be the hero of his story. And we're not. God is the hero. And when God wants to do something, he gets her done. In the story, he sent dreams to terrify this Midianite coalition army, to discourage them. What might he do in our world? What does it mean to you that the Lord can change a mind? He can change a heart. What does that mean for you, for that person that you love and want to know Jesus? You might ask yourself how you came to know the Lord. Because I know people in my life, in fact, I met one of them about a decade ago. This guy I used to uh, be on the same floor with in my dorm. He was an outspoken Christian, and I wasn't. And he saw me at a pastor's conference. He's like a youth worker now. And his jaw, I mean, he's like, what in the, what are you doing here? I never would have guessed you would be a pastor. I mean, the Lord has done some transforming. I, I look in this room, and I know some of your stories. The Lord can change a heart. He can change a mind. He can do it in the people that you may have given up on. Don't give up on them because it's the Lord we're talking about here. He can change the heart of the lost. He can transform a marriage. He can reach a wayward child. He can topple governments if he wants to, and he's done it before, or he can work through a government that we think is totally corrupt, and God might have a plan on how to use them. Don't underestimate this Lord. And he can transform you, and he can still transform me with this good news. You see, I, I don't think it's that God can work through weak people and small things. I think he prefers to. Because the more glory God gets, the more people will look to him and say, he's awesome, I need him. And that's what we need. So we found the true hero of the story not only in this story, but in the story of the world. It's not Gideon, it's not Israel, it's not the 300, it's God. I feel like as I wrap this up, I would be negligent if I didn't point out another hero with his fingerprints all over the story. And while he's not mentioned by name, the story of Gideon, I think, points to him. Take a look again at Judges 6.16. Then the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. As one man, I kind of know a story, you probably do too, about one man who defeats a great enemy against all odds, a story in which one man defeats the enemy, death itself. Of course, that one man is Jesus. Like Gideon, we are weak compared to the power of sin and death, and just like Gideon, we are fearful of our enemies, whether those enemies are home or abroad, whether they're real or made up in our minds, whether they're physical enemies or spiritual enemies. I'm thankful that Gideon's story is not an example of strength that we're supposed to copy. It's an example of God's strength and God's compassion, his hesed, his covenant-keeping love, and his story points to Jesus. See, Gideon represented all of Israel and her weakness and needed God to rescue her, but Jesus represents all of humanity. He's the new Adam. He did what we could not do for ourselves, taking our sin upon himself and defeating death as well. And Jesus is not just a life ring. He just doesn't defeat our enemies for us. 
He defeats them, and then he says, come into relationship with me. Come. This is a long-term deal. I'm giving you life to be with me for all time. Would you pray with me? Lord, we can relate uh, to Gideon. If we're honest, Lord, we know that we're weak. If we're honest, like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, we often do the things we don't want to do. Miserable people that we are when we do the very things we don't want to do. Bless you that you've revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus. That to the question, who will save me from myself? Who will save me from the hook of sin and death? Thanks be to God for you, Jesus. Our strong Savior. Conqueror of sin and death. Author of new life. Help us not to pretend that we're strong, but to embrace you. To stay connected to you as the vine. Help us to be healthy branches grafted in to the spring of living water. Jesus, I pray for new life for each one here right now. Bless you that that's what you want more than we do. Amen.